Yeah, it's, you know, it's RailsConf season, so everybody's off doing whatever they do at RailsConf. This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A. bid on Ruby developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average Ruby developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they give you a $2,000 signing bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the Ruby Rogues link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hire to get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hire.com slash Ruby Rogues. This episode is sponsored by Codeship.com. Don't you wish you could simply deploy your code every time your tests pass? Wouldn't it be nice if it were tied to a nice continuous integration system? That's Codeship. They run your code. If all your tests pass, they deploy your code automatically. For fast, free continuous delivery, check them out at CodeChip.com. Continuous delivery made simple. Snap is a hosted CI and continuous delivery that is simple and intuitive. Snap's deployment pipelines deliver fast feedback and can push healthy builds to multiple environments automatically or on demand. Snap integrates deeply with GitHub and has great support for different languages, data stores, and testing frameworks. Snap deploys your application to cloud services like Heroku, DigitalOcean, AWS, and many more. Try Snap for free. Sign up at snapci.com slash rubyrogues. This episode is sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean is the provider I use to host all of my creations. All the shows are hosted there, along with any other projects I come up with. Their user interface is simple and easy to use, their support is excellent, and their VPSs are backed on solid-state drives and are fast and responsive. Check them out at digitalocean.com. If you use the code RubyRogues, you'll get a $10 credit. Hello and welcome to episode 205 of the Ruby Rogues. Today on the Rogues panel, we have Avdi Grimm. Hello from Tennessee. And we have myself, and I'm hosting, so do your own intro joke. Our guest today is, we have a very small panel. This is going to be a very intimate conversation. Our special guest today is Piotr Solnika. Do you want to introduce yourself and t- give the listeners a little bit of a background about yourself? Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, so I'm a software consultant from Poland. Uh, I've been programming Ruby and Rails for the last eight years, sometimes a little bit of JavaScript uh, as well. Uh, I've been doing some open source work on two. Uh, these days, I'm mostly busy with a project called Ruby Object Mapper, uh, which, as I call it, is a data mapping and persistence toolkit for Ruby. Um, yeah, I also created a, pro- a project called Virtus, uh, which was an extraction of property API from the data mapper project. Awesome. Okay, so we've dragged you before the Rogues Tribunal today to defend your blog post, which is actually kind of awesome. I've I've just uh, skimmed over it, but you wrote a post uh, last month, I guess, called Eight Things I Learned During Eight Years of Ruby and Rails. And rather than just go through your post point by point, well, I guess we can do that, or maybe we could do both. But if you could kind of sum up, like, what is the most important thing you've learned in the last eight years of Ruby and Rails? Is there is there any one, like, the I, I realize you don't want to eliminate, you know, say, this thing and not these other things. But, like, what's the, the happiest or strongest or most important thing that you've come away with so far? Um, yeah, I think the first point, which is test-driven development, that would be, like, the most important thing I've learned uh, that has had, like, the biggest impact on the way I work. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not strictly related to Ruby and Rails, of course, but 
I learned it while writing Ruby and Rails. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I think that's the most important thing. And I guess the second point is also pretty important for me. Now, uh, now, now your second point is heretical. There's a world outside of Rails. Yeah. W- what? <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, I spent first, I guess, a couple of years mostly doing Rails like exclusively uh, without writing any Ruby code outside of Rails. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was also like surrounded by Rails-related gems, so everything I used was related to Rails in one way or the other. And at some point, I realized that whoa, there are so many nice things out there. But for some reason, uh, throughout all those years, Rails has been like the most popular thing in our community, which is kind of a shame because there are so many things outside of Rails, like so many people building really, really interesting libraries and frameworks. Uh, and I just think it's it's worth to explore this world because there's massive potential there as well. Mm-hmm. So, like for me, this is something that motivates me a lot to work on things that are not strictly related to Rails or are just completely not related to Rails. Yeah, no, that, that totally makes sense. I came to Ruby, oh gosh, almost ten years ago, before Rails had really caught on, and so I sometimes. You know, people say there's a world outside of Rails. You know, there's Padrino, there's Sinatra, there's, you know, if you go back far enough, there's camping, you know, there's all these other, you know, there's rack. And I like to smile and point out to people that in Ruby, there's a world outside of web. You can do other programming besides web programming in Ruby. Yeah, that's so true. Um, like for me, the way I see it at least is that Ruby has been mostly used as a, as a language to build web apps, right? Because mm-hmm. of Rails. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it doesn't change the fact that you can use Ruby for lots of different things. So if we like keep focusing on Rails and, and web-related solutions, then it may even damage Ruby as a language because it will not evolve as fast as it could. Yeah, or it will evolve purely in the web direction, right? Yeah, like it, towards, it, yeah, yeah, it might exactly. it might start making trade-offs. You know, giving up generalized programming abilities for web-specific specialization. What does your current like library stack look like when you have a choice? Uh, when I have a choice, that's completely weird because <laughs> uh, I'm I'm these days I'm 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 really experimenting. So if I had a choice, I would at least try to build my own stack like almost from the ground up. Um, I will probably just use Rack for a good start and build wow. something on top of it. Although literally like last week I started building uh, a small website and I started using Roda uh, framework, which is, uh, it started as a fork of Cuba, just kind of like Sinatra, uh, but I think faster and smaller, even smaller. And what I like about Roda is that it's similar, like when it comes to its philosophy, it's, it's, it's similar to, to Ruby object mapper because it, for example, it's, it's immutable once you create it. Uh, an application instance, you can freeze it and it will, it will never change. It's also, it, it was built by, by, uh, creator of SQL library, which also is used by, by Ruby Object Mapper. So I'm, I'm kind of a big fan of, of, of this library. So basically when I looked at Roda, I was like, okay, this looks really nice. So I decided to give it a go. Uh, and so far so good. Uh, it's really small, really fast. And basically every, every additional functionality is, is a plugin. So Roda essentially is a, is a router and everything else is a plugin. So I could easily add tiny little features like, I don't know, view rendering or some, some additional stuff like assets, for example. Uh, so I really liked it that it was so small and that I could like create my own little stack from it. 
uh, and add Ruby Object Mapper to to handle database. So for web stuff, I would probably choose Rota these days. Although I just started experimenting with it, it's just it looks good. Mm-hmm. It just looks good. Jeremy Evans talked about Rota at uh, Mountain Western Recomp this year. And one of the things that kind of blew my mind is that it uses a, I'm going to get this wrong, it uses, I want to say a binary tree, but that, that might be wrong. What I do know is that it uses a tree to build out all of the routes, which means that as you add more and more layers to your routes and your routes get bigger and bigger and bigger, and we're talking like applications with like 10,000 routes to them. So, I mean, this is a routes file that's completely out of control. Rota will slow down logarithmically over time. So basically 10,000 routes is only twice as slow as 1,000 routes or you know or some fraction. It, it, it's le- it's far less than linear where like Sinatra will will go linear for a while and then it'll start to go exponential and Rails will do kind of the same thing. And there was a great question from the audience which was like what kind of apps are you building that have 10,000 or 100,000 routes in them? And Jeremy just shrugged and says, it happens. And uh, <laughs> when I look at Roto, I, I like the DSL to it. I like, you can just like r.on hello do, and that's a route. It's, it's, I don't know, it just, the, the nested tree format of it looks really pretty to me. So Yeah, I like it too. I like it mostly because you just see what happens. You don't have to jump between some, some routing definition in one file and then go to the controller or whatever it is that handles the request to see what will happen. Mm-hmm. You just see the routing tree. Uh, it's right in front of you, and, and you see exactly what gets invoked. Uh, I think that's nice. It's explicit, and it's in, in, in just one place. Yeah. Now, we skipped over TDD a little bit. We kind of glossed over it. There's a lot of people that love TDD, obviously, and I'm definitely one of them. And there's a, a fairly large camp of people that kind of, they, they do TDD, but, right? And I'm, I'm kind of in this camp. Where the, that we do TDD, but and you actually say in, in your blog post, you say that you do it even when you're spiking. Uh, you say I do it even when I'm prototyping, and those are the cases when I often will not TDD because TDD, the way I do it, slows me down. If I don't know the interface of the thing that I'm building, TDD will slow me down. If I know the interface, you know, if I if I know the architecture and design of what I want to build, then TDD it's just like shoring up a boardwalk as I move out over the ocean, right? I mean, it's, it, it makes you move very fast, very stable, very secure. But if I don't know where I'm going, TDD gets in my way. And I'm always open to the possibility that this is because I'm doing it wrong, not because TDD is a poor candidate for spiking and prototyping. So my question for you then is, talk me through how TDD helps you with spiking and prototyping. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's actually pretty simple. Uh, like the, the, the first thing that helped me a lot is that I don't have to focus so much on unit testing as I thought I should. I don't think that's true. I think that good test coverage through, through unit testing is, is like your goal. Uh, you're like getting there all the time, yeah. but it's perfectly good to start with some higher level tests. Oh, okay. Uh, so, so when you talk about like TDD, it's not necessarily unit tests. That you're starting with, you might be starting with more like higher level, almost like like behavior driven. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Like when I'm building, I don't know, a Rails app, right? Um, typically, I start with a KP bar feature test, mm-hmm. and I and I just make it pass. Um, that's like 
the most basic thing that I can do, like describe how something should work on a very high level. Uh, and then I just make it pass. And it's a start for me. Uh, and I do it with absolutely everything. Like when I'm spiking, I have some idea like, okay, uh, I want to achieve something. And I can always describe it with a test. Mm-hmm. Because if, if mm-hmm. I don't describe it with a test, I would do something like, I don't know, put some output and, and just look at the output. But that's not so great for me. I prefer to write a test and then just see it pass. Right. Why, why puts the output when you can capture the output and compare it and make an assertion? Yeah, exactly. Okay. So for anybody that does TDD the way I do, there's actually an epiphany here in what you just said, which is that you go up to a higher level. You can, if you can't TDD at a very low level because you don't know what the low level interface is, you can always go to a higher level and TDD at that level. And that totally makes sense to me. I'm spiking out an app right now and I have no freaking clue how the low-level objects are going to work. I've got a really nasty knot. There's like three different ways I can build the interface, and they all have problems. And I'm like, I can't TDD this. And I just realized that the one level higher of this, the behavior is very clear. I know exactly what the higher-level code should do. And you're absolutely right. I should build the test at that point. And then however I choose to build out the units underneath it, then that'll matter. That'll fix it. Yeah, exactly. I mean... That's the process. Like it's about the design, right? Like yeah. you you need to you need to go through multiple steps to get to a point where you're happy with the design. But it's just impossible to to imagine the entire design upfront. Yeah. Upfront. I mean, you can do that, but it's upfront design, and and that's bad. You're typically you're wrong in the beginning. Uh, so mm-hmm. that's where TDD helps because you describe something that's very basic in the beginning and just see it work. Oh, and that's then, beautiful. And then you can take it from there and, and just see how things evolve. And one thing that really helped me, and, and thank you, Avdi, because it was one of your episodes uh, in, in Ruby Tapas, is you, one of the, your episodes, uh, you, sh- you showed how you, I think you were building some command line script or something, I forget what it was, but you were showing how to do TDD, and you had this rule that once you don't get a meaningful feedback from a test, once you see a failure and it's hard for you to figure out why it actually failed, it's a good moment for you to break things down into, into smaller pieces and, and switch to a more lower level tests. Uh, and for me, that was like a great explanation and I just loved it. So that's how I work these days. I just write a test, make it pass. And once something is failing and I'm finding myself struggling with, with a long backtrace or anything, it's for me, it's, it's a sign that, okay, now it's just too complicated, and I, I just need to break things down into smaller pieces. Yeah. And and at that point, I already know enough to write those lower-level tests. And that's for me, that's just the most efficient way of working. That is so great, because what you've just described is there's a time when you get stuck on how it's too big, so you need to break it down. And there are times when you don't know how the broken-down pieces are going to work, so you need to scale up, you know, and test like at a behavior level. Yeah, you really have to to like listen to the to what the tests are telling you and and adjust your altitude. Yeah. Okay, my mind is blown. You two talk amongst yourselves. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we've talked a lot about TDD. So I don't want to hammer that to death in this episode. One thing that you brought up in your blog post, uh, which I think is a really interesting topic to talk about in Ruby is you've been finding a lot of value in immutability, haven't you? Yeah. Why do you like immutability, and, and what what was the shift for you starting to think about immutability in Ruby? 
Um, well, it's a, it's a whole story because it started when Dencap started using uh, something called common query separation, uh, which is an idea that you divide your interfaces into two categories, that some methods are commands and some methods are queries. And commands can change objects and queries cannot. So that was like the, the first step for us because we started doing that in our open source projects and I really enjoyed it. So um, an example of, of a violation of this uh, this rule and this, this idea is, for example, valid method in active record. Because uh, it's a command and a query, so it changes the object because it tests the, er- the, the uh, errors uh, messages on an active record instance. And at the same time, it's it's a query because it, it gives you uh, an answer to to the question whether an object was uh, is valid or not. Uh, so the separation was a great first step because it allowed us to to uh, make things more explicit and more clear that some methods can change objects and some methods cannot. One interesting thing that Dan started doing was that command methods always return self so that you cannot rely on the um, return value immediately. You, know, you just call a command method and then you, uh, then you ask for some information from an object uh, using a query method. Um, so like in case of active record, it would be something like, you know, validate, for example, would be a command which would validate the object. And then you would ask a valid uh, predicate method uh, to ask if that object is valid or not. And that's just a cleaner way of, of organizing things. And I really liked it. But that was that was like the first step, uh, because the second step uh, was to actually drop completely all the methods that change the objects. Uh, and then started doing that. And I liked the idea because I liked how the code looked like, uh, although it was kind of difficult for me to understand how to do it. <laughs> Because if you design your objects in a way that they will never change, then there's much more work that you need to do uh, before instantiating them. So it was a little bit difficult for me because it didn't feel like idiomatic in Ruby. Um, but I decided to struggle just because I was curious. And I did that. And uh, after some time, I don't know how, how long it took me, but after some time, I, I just learned it and it felt great. And like these days, it's just how I do things. Uh, it just feels natural for me. So that was the story <laughs> behind it. Um, that's how it all started. Uh, so these days, every time I write a class, uh, I design an object, it, it has interface. When I need some new representation of a given object, uh, I would return a new instance rather than to change the object in place. So yeah, that was the story. Okay, so um, actually, I kind of want to get concrete on that. So a user object, uh, you want to change change the person's name. Uh, what does that look like? That's tough, because the way I do it these days is that, at least in, in Ruby Object Mapper, we have separation between reading and writing. So uh, if you read data, uh, you get objects that don't change, or they shouldn't change at least. And if you change data, you have a separate completely separate interface for that. You have a command interface. So when I'm using ROM, I don't have a user object that changes. It's like... Well, don't... okay, I want to circle back on that, but I'm curious, like, just the, the, like, leaving out persistence, leaving out how you would, like, get that out of the database and put it back in, just to have an object and change its, you know, like, change a user's name. Do you have a way of saying clone yourself but with one field changed, or how are you managing yes, that? Yes, yes, yeah. That's how it works. Uh, you just return a new instance with a different name. 
Do you have like a, a setter method for each attribute that does that? Or do you have like a, a global update method? How, how do you structure that? Like my convention is, is to have a private method that can return a new instance based on the current state and some input that was sent. I mean, there are different libraries out there that have this kind of functionality. Like, for example, there, there is MBJ's uh, Anima. It has, I think, update method. Anima is similar to, to uh, Virtus, for example. So it instantiates an object with an attribute, attribute hash, but it's immutable. So you can't change an object. And if you want to get a new instance with an updated name, you just call uh, user.update. Uh, but it will return a new instance uh, rather than changing the object in place. Yeah, All right, so that's really interesting. So that's basically how you're doing it? Yes. I mean, uh, like naming-wise, I'm still considering what the name of this method should be. Like we're considering with, for example, or dot .new again. I mean, not dot .new, like mm -hmm. instance new method. But yeah, in general, mm -hmm. the convention is to return a new instance, and it has to know how to do it. So it needs to like merge the uh, existing state of an, uh, of an object with the new thing, the new attribute, or a new attribute hash, or whatever it is. Right. So you might, you right. might say user.find1, which is going to return Bob, and then in that same chain, you could say user.find1.update name equals Alice, or, you know, name colon Alice, and that's going to clone the object and give you back a new user object. It's not going to modify the one that we loaded from the database. It's going to give you back a new one. Yes. I like that. I like that. Immutability is actually the third point that you mentioned in your blog post, and I love immutability, and I love the concept of it, and I love, like, when you follow it and adhere to it really well, it gives you back a lot but it's one of those trade-offs that you kind of have to work hard to get it to work, especially in Ruby. And, and you actually mentioned that, that, that immutability is definitely not a first-class feature in Ruby. You've already talked about how the code doesn't quite feel idiomatic, but are there some like actual technical problems or performance issues with immutability in Ruby? I'd like If you're cloning objects, obviously you're burning memory somewhere. What other issues do you run into with immutability? The biggest problem is, is freezing objects. So we started by using uh, a gem called adamantium, mm -hmm. uh, which deeply freezes your object, and that's just slow. Um, so, like for me, from my point of view, uh, using this gem was was a great way to, you know, teach myself to avoid mutability. But now I, I'm no longer using it because it's just too slow. So that that was the concern. Uh, that's why I mentioned that it's not the first-class feature of Ruby, uh, even though it's a public interface and so on and so forth, but still, it's just slow. But, you know, when I say immutable objects, I'm not very strict here. Like, I'm not saying make sure that you cannot change an object. Uh, it's right. just avoid unnecessary mutation, because yeah. you really don't need that so often as you think. So, like, w when I'm introducing a new object with some methods, those methods just don't change this object, even though it's still mm -hmm. possible to change it because it's Ruby and like you can do whatever you want. Uh, but I'm just avoiding it. It's not my interface. My interface mm -hmm. cannot be used in a way that would change something. And for me, that's valuable. That's a, actually a really good like general point. Like there's a difference between avoiding doing something in your code and trying to build a gatekeeper to prevent anybody from doing something in the code. Yeah, it's really hard. Like uh, when we started using adamantium um, in 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 ROM, I was like constantly hitting a wall with some gem uh, that was used, where it actually did rely on on mutability of some object, 
and it would be frozen <laughs> because I use adamantium and it deeply freezes everything. Uh, so we were freezing, you know, objects that come from some third party, uh, you know, dependencies. <laughs> so that obviously breaks things. So right. you just cannot be so strict about it in Ruby because there's just, there are so many things that, that are mutable. It's just not reasonable to do it yeah. like that. Yeah. Where I see immutability really being difficult in Ruby, it's one of these things you don't run into immediately. You, you start to realize it as your app becomes more complex. And I'm curious if you've had the, the same experience. Uh, where I see it being difficult is deeply nested data structures, or even moderately nested data structures, because, you know, changing Bob's name is one thing. But let's say Bob has a cat, and the cat has a food bowl, and the food bowl is red, and then you want to change the food bowl's color to blue. With mutable data, you would just say, okay, Bob, you know, user.pets.first. Okay, this is sounding terrible. I love that your brain, is obvi- your brain is refusing uh, to let you violate the law of Demeter here. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> my brain hates me right now. But, you know, you might, the, the thing about De- De- Demeter, though, is that you, it's perfectly legal to do this in separate methods. I mean, you don't want to jam it all together in one sure. method, but it's perfectly legal to have a series of methods that are digging down into this data structure that are saying, okay, you know, one is getting Bob's pet, and the next one is getting Bob's pet's food bowl, and, and finally there's one that, that sets color to blue. But what happens with immutability is you can't just, you know, you can't just chain it and put an assignment on the end because you have to, you have to go down there and you have to clone the food bowl with a new color and then you have to clone the cat. And um, you have to clone Bob. With, you have to clone the cat with a new, with a, a new reference to a new, to that new food bowl and then you have to clone the, the pet collection that now contains the new cat, not the old cat that has the reference to the red food bowl, and then you have to clone Bob to reference the new pets collection. And that's where immutability seems to get really difficult in Ruby. And in functional languages, you have in, you have fancy concepts like zippers and things that, I think that's the right term, that enable you to sort of tackle these updates in a way that looks vaguely like it would if you were doing it mutably. But uh, yeah, I mean, do you run into issues with that? Not really. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's just that I decided to split things, so I just do it separately. Like, if I loaded something into memory, then I did it to re- read the data. And if I want, if I want to change something, but yeah, we're talking about ROM right now. <laughs> uh, I, I haven't experienced that problem, uh, the problem that you described. Uh, I've never had a code like that. I hope you don't. This, <laughs> I hope you never do. This sounds like a Turing equivalence of just the deeply nested object problem, right? And you'll run into this code smell, or, well, it's not a code smell. You'll run into a testing pane where, like, you want to test changing the color of the food bowl when all you have is a Bob interface. And so you end up with these fixture files that have to set up bobs and pets and cat and food bowl. And you have all these fixtures and let statements in your RSpec and all that stuff. And you have all this set up in this teardown. And it's a testing pain. And the testing pain is actually leading you to a code smell, which is you have this deeply nested object structure. And I'm wondering if because I agree with you, Avdi, that the changing the color of the food bowl forcing you to reclone you know the your, your entire employee's database, right? Because you you modified Bob, which means you now have to clone the entire employee database, and it, it seems like this is a pain that gets surfaced very quickly with immutable code. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, there is a reason that things like like zippers exist in immutable programming yeah. languages, 
because you really do often need to update. You know, you might have it's not uncommon to have trees that are, you know, three layers deep sure. or something of sure. data. And you often need to say, OK, I need to update five different things in this aggregate object. And I need to make sure that, you know, I get the, the, the new copy of the whole structure yeah. back. And it's not something that Ruby, in my experience, it's not something that Ruby really lends itself to. But but if it works for you. <laughs> <laughs> now, I'm, I'm curious how far you've gone with this immutability stuff. Have you dug at all into, like, persistent data structures like the hamster library or anything like that? Uh, no, not, not yet. Uh, I haven't haven't used hamster anywhere. I mean, these days I'm, I'm using, um, when I'm loading data from, from a database, I'm, I'm trying to build very simple struct-like objects that are just used for reading. But yeah, I, I haven't actually tried anything that would be truly immutable like hamster. It's just the way I use it is that I don't rely on mutability of those objects. Um, I use separate objects for reading and, and separate objects for writing. Cool. I like that. This is actually a really good segue into the next point in your post, which is you talk about no rules, just guidelines. And... You know, we, we, we talked about how immutability with deeply nested object structures can give you a source of pain. And so you tend to start, I anyway have been kind of shocked by the cattle prod enough times that I've stopped building deeply nested. I mean, I mean, you, yes, you do get forced at times into building, you know, trees that are, you know, two or three or four levels deep. But when you've got a tree that's like 20 levels deep, you riot, you know, instead of saying, yes, we'll go ahead and build that, you, no, you, you revolt, or at least I do anyway, or at least people say I'm revolting. Anyway, um, the interesting thing is that as we talked about immutability, we talked about things, you run into problems with Ruby, and point four is kind of interesting because you run into problems with Rubyists if you start to give them rules. Like, Every argument I've ever heard against the law of Demeter centers around the fact that people rankle over whether or not it's a law. They're like, well, who made it a law? Who's the judiciary body here? I'm like, no, just just listen to what I'm saying. It's stop chaining together so many things and you'll stop having so much coupling in your code. Yeah, but it's not a law. How have you found rules turning into guidelines? I I think, if I remember correctly, like I started thinking about it like that after spending a lot of time uh, using various code metric tools. So I learned a lot about various code smells. I learned a lot about all kinds of uh, uh, rules and laws, uh, as you mentioned, like law of Demeter. And I tried to maybe not follow those rules 100% all the time, but I tried to follow them as much as I could. And I just realized that quite often you don't really need to follow something until mm -hmm. you really see that it is a problem. And it's much more important to like keep in mind what kind of common problems you, you may face or what kind of code smells may give you trouble. And like being aware of that is much more important than like refactoring your code immediately just because you realize that something violates some law or, or rule or whatever. Yeah. So like for me, what became much more important is to be able to change the code easily without fear. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's, that's like strictly related to test-driven development and, and just good testing skills. So I started focusing on, on learning how to, how to become better at testing, how to, how to write better tests so that I can change my code easily. Yeah. So this is basically something that, that allows me to, like once I know that there are some rules and I see that some, parts of my code violate some rules, then having that knowledge helps me to refactor it 
And with good tests, I can do it easily, right? Because mm-hmm. I just, you know, change implementation. And if my tests were, were good, then it will continue to pass. So that's, that was like my realization that I don't need to fear that my code is violating some rules because mm-hmm. it happens all the time. And most of the common code smells are like, by definition, they are potential problems. So like when you see a low, law of Demeter violation, it's not like it's going to ruin your life. It will probably give you trouble, like mm-hmm. 90% sure it will, but it doesn't change the fact that it's not like you need to immediately refactor it. Yeah. Sometimes the right thing to do is to weld two things together and couple them strongly and just live with the coupling for as long as you can, right? I mean, that's the fastest way to do it. That's true. This is really related to, to testing. It's, it's just much more important to, to be able to, to write good tests and be able to easily change your code. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just don't freak out just because your, your code violates some rules. So that's why yeah. guidelines, like, be aware of them, like, have that knowledge, yeah. learn about it, but like, don't be so strict about it because it's, it's just not reasonable. Yeah. So can I put you on the spot? Is there a specific good, air, you know, quote unquote good programming rule? That has led you to have difficult tests and hard to maintain code. You mean that by violating it, I have problems with tests? Or no, the other way around. The other way around. Yeah. Like, like where there's some rule that everyone agrees is a good rule, and because you say that, what did you say? You say I found that applying OO rules rigorously to my Ruby code has had some bad consequences. Are there some object-oriented rules that? I guess I don't want you to come out and just decry object-oriented programming entirely. You don't have to like debunk the entire school of thought. But is there like a rule that like you can take way too far? Single responsibility principle, probably. Mm-hmm. That's the first thing that comes to my mind. Okay, so like, you you might have a class that has more than one responsibility, or you would spread the responsibility through multiple classes. If you try to like really rigorously follow it right from the start, you will end up in misery. Okay, that's a good heretical statement. I like it. I like it. <laughs> I like to have classes that are three lines long and they just handle setting one attribute on another. Right. Yes. yes. Well, cloning that object, you know. My Hello World programs have a class for for both Hello and for World. Because <laughs> those are those are clearly different. Have you concepts. guys seen the FizzBuzz solution in C Sharp? I'll I'll not. post it in nope. the show notes. It's like 500 lines of code. There's like a FizzBuzz concrete implementation factory. Yeah, there's, <laughs> there's a manifest file. There's like 30 different classes in it. And yeah, it's pretty awesome. <laughs> Somebody should write a version that uh, first, you know, instantiates a uh, client for a web, uh, FizzBuzz web service. Right on. I actually was in a, a job interview and somebody said, let's do FizzBuzz. And I'm like, this has got to be a well-studied problem, so require FizzBuzz. And he's like, okay, but what if the gem doesn't exist? And I'm like, okay, then gem install FizzBuzz. And I got the job because I went home that night and I built the gem and published it and sent him an email that night that says, by the way, that code will now work because the gem does actually exist um, (laughs) as of 6 p.m. tonight. And he's like, okay, I like this guy's attitude. See, that's that's uh, an argument in, fra- in favor of uh, mutability. The the fact that the internet is mutable <laughs> is what got you <laughs> that's that right. job. That's right. <laughs> By the way, uh, I feel like I should play uh, novice's advocate here and say, what is FizzBuzz? So FizzBuzz is a beginner-level programming quiz test where you ask somebody to print out 
the numbers from 1 to 100, 1 per line, so 1, then 2. The catch is, is that if the number is divisible by 3, you print out fizz instead of the number. So you would print out 1, 2, fizz, 4. If the number is divisible by 5, you print out the word buzz. So it's 1, 2, fizz, 4, buzz, and then fizz again because it's divisible by 6, and so on, all the way up until you have the number that's divisible by 3 and by 5, in which case you put out fizz, buzz, and then it all starts over again. And, you know, if you've been programming for 10 or 15 years, this is not a programming test, this is a typing test. But a lot of recruiters and a lot of interviewers found some beginner-level programmers that actually couldn't solve FizzBuzz in under an hour. And so this was really popular back in like 2008 or 2009 as an entry-level test to kind of weed out just the utter novices from the kind of novices that have at least been around the block once. So... I guess yeah. If you're if you're in a boot camp or coming out of a boot camp, or if you're trying to throw your hat in the ring for a programming job for your first time, Google Fizzbuzz and see if you can solve it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Thank you for that. Definition. I uh, the other reason I got the job was because I submitted the next morning. I submitted a solution that seeded the random number generator with this like this big hairy eighteen digit uh, number, and then looped a hundred times, and it it had an array of the current number, the word fizz, the word buzz, and the word fizz buzz, and it selected one at random and printed it. And it was just print one at random, print one at random, print one at random, and the output was correct. And it spooked the interviewer. He's like, how in the heck? And and I said, well, you see that S rand up there where I'm seeding the random number generator with this number that's like, you know, two and a half, you know, billion or something like that. It took my computer 17 hours to find the random number seed that would generate the correct random output in the right order. And yeah, there, I, I for a brief time I, I collected crazy solutions to FizzBuzz. Giles Boquette submitted my absolute favorite one, which is he monkey patched FixNum so that it would represent itself as you know FizzBuzz or FizzBuzz. So so his code once he had once he had monkey patched FixNum, his code was puts one dot dot 100 and you know just print the numbers <laughs> one to 100 and they they will render themselves correctly and the best part was is if you loaded it up in irb irb prints out line numbers at the beginning uh, to the left of your code and it uses the fixnum class to do it so you would you would write line one and then on line two and then on line fizz and then on line four <laughs> and then on line buzz <laughs> and so I, yeah it, yeah it made your eyes itch you were like wait what happened so, all right. So those are some good thoughts on, on rules versus guidelines. You've got another point. If we were to go through this, this post in order, you've got a point where you say class interfaces are a smell. Can we just all agree on that and move on? <laughs> unless, unless we want to elaborate on it. I mean, I, I'll play new, newbie's advocate at this point because I have come into this in the past year and a half. Like, like it never really dawned on me that classes are constants defined globally up in the kernel and public or static class methods rather I, static you, my, my c++ background is showing but class methods are public accessor methods on those global objects which means they are global methods global variables yeah so piotr what's your uh, what's your take on class interfaces um yeah like the first moment when i started thinking about it as a problem was Rails, and it's especially horrible in Rails due to the auto-loading. 
So one of the things that made me start to think about it as, as a problem was when I hit my first huge Rails app that was just so big that many, many places had to be refactored. And people were just discovering so many places where there are so much coupling, internal coupling within the code. And one of the reasons for that was that in Rails, you can refer to, to any class anywhere and it will, it will be automatically loaded. So you can accidentally, uh, without, you know, thinking much about it, create a class that over time starts to depend on, I don't know, 12 other things just because you can use it right there without the need to require it, without the need to instantiate it. You just call a method on a class. It's so simple. Uh, you don't think about it. So it feels great in the beginning. But like the, the end result is that you, you create so much coupling uh, and you introduce so many dependencies inside your classes completely without thinking about it. But in general, when it comes to class interfaces, I just like to be explicit about dependencies. So when I have an object that has just, you know, too many things to do that I need to in introduce some collaborators, I would always inject them in the constructor as objects. I would never instantiate them myself in the constructor. So the object will not know how to insta instantiate its dependencies. And this technique was very helpful for me. Um, and I realized that I always want to do it. I, I always want to use objects and introduce dependencies as objects, not classes, just because this makes me aware of dependencies and, and make dependencies very explicit. And also, once you start using objects rather than classes everywhere, uh, there are a lot of a lot of nice benefits as kind of a side effect. Like it's it's much easier to test things because you can easily use mocks uh, in your tests. So yeah, like these days I'm I'm using classes only. I mean class interfaces only to instantiate objects. So I'm I'm mostly using them as object factories or whatever you want to call it. How are you handling collections? Because there's a a thing that we kind of inherited from Rails a little bit where. Like if you have a, a user object, you want to create a user instance. But if you want to manipulate a collection of users in Java or C++, I would have a users collection, right? That extends the list or extends iterator, or, you know, or whatever, um, or extends iterable rather. But in Ruby, especially inherited from Rails, it seems like you say user.update all in order to update a collection of users and that sort of thing. How do you handle that? I mean, the way, the way I did it in ROM is that you have relation objects and they represent relations. So those are your collections. Okay. So you would have basically like a users class. Yeah. You could name it like that. I actually do name it like that in the examples. Okay. Um, yeah. So yeah, if you have like 10 users, they would go in an instance of a users object and then you could manipulate them collectively. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, awesome. this is this is something awesome. I've seen bite people in their code bases so many times because the the implicit assumption when you have when a class acts as the collection of all instances, the assumption there is that you're only ever going to have one collection of all instances, and that is mm -hmm. one of those kind of similarly to the uh, the assumption of has one. It's one of those mm -hmm. assumptions that will inevitably be violated. I mean, you know, you have the, yeah. for instance, uh, you know, typical Railsy example where you have the collection of, you know, employee, the employee class also doubles as the collection of all employees. Well, what happens when you have, 
a uh, a net split with your you know sharded databases uh, or your your clone databases and you find yourself doing some some devops work where you're you know you're trying to copy a bunch of employee records from one database to another and you think oh I'll just write a ruby script that copies from one database to the other and then you realize that embedded in that idea of the employee class being the collection of all employees is that it's the collection of all employees in one database well how do you connect to both databases at mm -hmm. once and you can, but it's in, it's way more painful than it needs to be because of that assumption mm -hmm. that there is one you know global collection of, of all employees. And this also bites you when you're trying to test, and in many yeah. many different ways when you have that central collection that that there is only one of. There needs to be a proper name for this. I you guys have known me to long enough to know that I have this weird kind of aphasia where I name things the wrong thing all the time, and. We ran into this, the, the most explosive time that this ran in, that this really bit me on a team was when I was, uh, working at Acclaim writing Jeremy McGrath Supercross. And up to, oh gosh, 11 months into the project, everything we had ever done in the code, we referenced the track. Basically, you know, the, whichever, you know, when you were racing around a Supercross track, we represented that by the track and there was only ever the track and the epiphany when we had to basically support like 16 different tracks to put in the cartridge or the, the PlayStation DVD or uh, CD rather back then we had to rewrite a lot of code because we had to go from like our team collectively had this painful epiphany and we call it, call it moving from the track model to a track model. It's the V to A, and I'm wondering if there's actually a proper name for this, where you stop thinking about the instance, the singleton instance of a thing, and start thinking about a collection of them. Uh, more and more lately, I feel like the entire notion of a single anything is just misleading in programming. <laughs> oh, that is so true. That is so true. Well, one thing I want to mention about about classes as well uh, in the context of Rails, and this is something that people don't usually think about. So when you have a, I know, some active record class, active record model, uh, let's say user, right? So in Rails, every class uh, is autoloaded, right? So you can you can refer to user anywhere, and the user at the same time, user model at the same time, gives you access to entire user users table. Right. So basically, from every place in your code base, you can refer to all the user data that you have in your database. Yeah. Uh, which leads to really, really nice things. Like, for example, last year I noticed in one project some pre-processed asset, coffee script asset that used ActiveCert model to do something and generate some data. And <laughs> I wanted to extract it to some other project because uh, we were splitting things up. And I realized that, oh shit, I have an asset that's coupled to my database. What the hell? Like, really? But it's possible. And it's so simple to do it, right? To do it like that in Rails because it will just work. Yeah. So that's, that's my, probably one of my biggest problems with, uh, using classes in, in Rails. Uh, it's just that it, you can couple so many things with your database without yeah. thinking too much about it. Yeah. That's actually a really good point. We, we've talked a lot on the show in the past about, like the surface area of your class, right? Like if you include a module in your class, basically that's multiple inheritance. You have added all of the methods in that module to the public interface of your class, and you have just greatly increased the size of the interface. And that's one of the solid principles. I think it's the 
I or the D basically says have small interfaces, if at all possible. It's better to have a bunch of small interfaces than to have one big interface. And you're talking about kind of the other point of view into this, which is not only is a very large surface area a bad thing, or, well, can it increase your maintenance nightmare, but I get this paranoia when I'm working, especially with Rails, because visibility into an object Every object in the system can see this object, which means that I have to be very paranoid as I'm writing this object because anybody can get me. Anybody can come grab me. I'm, I'm not protected in any way. And that's doubly paranoia making. Like in, in, in C++ or Java, I can make a bunch of stuff private and you can't get at it. And so I can be very defensive. And now lots of visibility doesn't hurt me as much. But with Ruby, when there really is no privacy, privacy is really just a protocol and, or, you know, it's, it's politeness. You can totally invade another class's privacy if you want. Throwing in a huge surface area with universal visibility, it really is just a recipe for woven matte code where every object is interlaced with every other object in the system. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's so true. This is the reason, one of the reasons why in, in, in Ruby Object Mapper there are no classes. I mean, the classes uh, are only used to configure ROM, but once you finalize the configuration, you get registries uh, with objects. So if you, if you want to access users, you do it through a registry of relations. And I noticed that some people see it as a problem because they compare it to Active Record and they, they do things like, oh, in Active Record it's like user.create and here I need to get the registry and then I need to get this object and call this method. It's like, it's more work. And I say like, yes, and that's a feature. Like, that's the feature, like, to make it explicit. Like, you need to treat this as a dependency and be really conscious about where you really want to use it and where you don't want to use it. And the fact that you cannot just refer it from anywhere is a feature. And that, that leads really well to your next point in this blog post, uh, where you say that convenience can be dangerous. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, we like briefly talked about this as well. So it mentions auto-loading in Rails, things like that. So, um, yeah, like these days I'm, I'm trying to use tools that are simple. Like I don't mind writing a little bit more code if it's more explicit and if it's just easier for, for me to understand what's happening. So like I think that Rails in general, like the philosophy behind Rails is to, to make people write as little code as possible, which is sometimes okay, but like my experience is that like in the long term, it's, it's not really sustainable and the code quickly grows to something that is just so difficult to maintain. And when there's a bug, it's just Im- almost impossible to, to debug it because there are so many objects with implicit behavior, so many things just, you know, happen automatically. And, and that's the price for convenience, uh, the way I see it, at least. We had Dave Thomas on last week, and we, we touched a lot on the principles that he mentioned in Pragmatic Programmer. And one of the things that he talks about in that book, that's it's a 15-year-old idea, but I mean, it's it's based on a pain that we started feeling back in like 1989, which is never trust an evil wizard. And an evil wizard is anything that does for you something in the system that you do not understand. And I like Rails from 2006 and 7 when their idea was convention over configuration. We're going to make the easy path simple. And Rails 4, it's now the behemoth that it used to make fun of, right? Like in 2006, Rails made fun of Java because it was so big and bulky. Well, Rails is now Java, and it still has convention over configuration, but there's so much 
configuration now that in 2008, when people said, Rails does a lot of magic, you you just like patted them on the head and say, well, just learn the magic. It's fine. There's not that much of it. And now people go, Rails has so much magic. And you, yeah, holy crap, it, it really does. It has tons of magic. How do you know, though? How do you, yeah. how do you know when you're at the sweet spot between convenience and explicitness? Uh, for me, when it's when it's easy to do something, like easy enough, and at the same time, when something goes wrong, it's easy for me to understand what's happening behind the scenes. That's a good balance. Like, I wouldn't sacrifice, like, the simplicity just to get something more convenient. Like, I don't mind writing two lines of code more, as I mentioned, if the benefit is that I'm using something that's simpler. So, like, I think the balance is important here. Like, have something that's easy enough to use, and at the same time, it's it's just simple to debug and simple to understand what's happening. It seems like that awareness requires being really mindful of the pain that you encounter when there's a problem. Because it, I think something that we do very often is we run into a problem and it's horrible and we spend a day just wrangling with it. But then the next day when we finally wrangled it to the ground and beaten it, we're just like, you know, whew, okay. And we, you know, move on. You know, we go on exactly as we were. Um, because we're done with that problem, and it's not a problem anymore. And then, you know, when we see somebody new hit that same issue, we're like, oh, yeah, that's a huge thing. That's hugely painful when that happens, and here are all the steps that you have to do to fix it. It's so easy, I guess, to dismiss the pain of working through a, an issue once you're done. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I'm curious, like, I mean, do you make an effort to notice when things are too complicated to to debug? Um, an effort, like in terms of inspecting my stack or like digging through the sources? Like, or... do you, I don't know. I mean, some people keep logs of, of issues they've had. I'm just curious if, if there's a way that you've made yourself more sensitive to, okay, this was too difficult to debug. I need to scale back on the convenience. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm spending a lot of, a lot of time making sure that what I write and what I use is just simple. We've had, a couple of cases in, in, in Rome uh, during the last few months where something was just too difficult. And even though it was convenient, we decided to remove it uh, and simplify it uh, just because it was too too implicit. Mm. For example, we were doing too, too much magic. And even though it felt just, you know, convenient uh, in some simple cases, the downside was that it was just difficult to understand. Yeah, like scaling down on metaprogramming mm -hmm. mostly. So, yeah, I, I do yeah a lot of effort goes into uh, making sure that things are simple, uh, that things are you know as explicit as possible, and there's just as little magic as possible. That seems like a really cool skill as, a, as an object, or as a project maintainer, a really kind of mature skill as a project maintainer, because I think, you know, my temp temptation as either a project maintainer or as an advocate of tools is often, you know, when somebody runs into an issue like that, is often to jump straight to, oh, yeah, it's, it's magical, let me show you the magic, let me explain the magic, instead of jumping straight to, hmm, maybe that's too magical. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And, you know, sometimes you, you, can, you can get the same result by just changing the implementation. So sometimes you don't really need that much, you know, uh, uh, magic. Uh, sometimes you just need to change your strategy uh, and, and just achieve the same goal, uh, but with a simpler implementation. Yeah. All right, so segueing very badly, <laughs> let's talk a little bit about mutation testing because you are one of the few advocates I've seen in the Ruby community that's really talking a lot about mutation testing. What is it and why does it matter? Uh, yeah, so 
Mutation testing is a, is a technique where you're using a tool that loads your code, changes it in memory, like at runtime, and then runs your tests. And the expectation is that some of those tests must fail. And if everything still passes, then you're missing some coverage. So in Ruby, we have a really good tool for that. It's called Mutant. I've been using it since it was created, uh, I think, like two years ago. And yeah, it's, uh, I'd say, an advanced technique. It requires, you know, a lot of time to, to learn it, how to, how to do it properly. Probably the biggest problem with it is the tool that you're using, uh, because it must run your tests and it must match which tests have to be run after changing some specific, uh, piece of your code. Because if you run all your tests, uh, it might get very, very slow. So that, that's a challenge on the tool side. But it's also a challenge because you need to know what kind of mutations are problematic for you. Um, so at least that's my experience with with Mutant. It's 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 the only tool that I use so far um, in Ruby. I mean, before that I used Heckle. Uh, but the general problem is to is to is to know which mutations are are actually problematic. Because if you want to achieve 100% mutation coverage, it's just a lot of work uh, and it will slow you down uh, like drastically. So. I still find it extremely valuable because it can easily find bugs in your code. Um, the only problem is that, at least that's my, my opinion, that it's not something that you would like to do on a daily basis. So especially if the code that you're writing is, is still like, you know, changing a lot because it puts a, like a huge emphasis on, 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 on really good test coverage. So the way I use it these days is that in my open source projects, I would use Mutant before the release against specific parts of my code. And from one release to another, the test coverage uh, is getting better and better. And one thing, probably one of my favorite parts of mutation testing is that it actually helps a lot in removing your code. So you can like easily simplify your code and remove things that you don't actually need because it shows you exactly all the places that are not covered by tests. And quite often you may realize that, oh, I actually don't need that and just remove something. So it's a fantastic technique, but it requires a lot of time to learn how to do it properly. Yeah. So, so if there's a line of that can't cause a test failure, even if it's changed or removed, that suggests that you might not even be using that line of code at all. Yeah, exactly. Very cool. Yeah, but it's tricky. Yeah, but it's tricky. Um, it's tricky. Uh, there are some some cases where some mutation is not really necessary. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, it's on the tool side. So mutant is is getting better and better with each release. It's just you know it takes time to to learn what kind of mutations you can like safely skip if something isn't really a problem. That's why aiming for one hundred percent coverage is just not reasonable. I find my biggest challenge with testing even today is eliminating duplication between my tests and my code. And what I'm trying to get towards is almost like a cross check. Like I, I'm. I'm old enough to have taken a like a bookkeeping class in high school for like like how to do tabulation and stenography and, and and that sort of stuff. And one of the things that they have you do is they you cross check your work. So like if you're adding up columns of numbers, then you check your work by adding up the rows of numbers and then you sum up both sums, you know, both you know the, the sums of the columns should equal the sums of the rows. And if those two numbers don't equal then you have a bug somewhere. And if you just sum up your columns a second time, like in your unit tests, basically that's duplication. 
So I try to build unit tests that will cross-check my functionality rather than, you know, basically duplicating what my code is doing. It will actually basically say, this is what I expect. Do you do it? Rather than, you know, do you do this step? Do you do this next step? Do you do this other step? And I have to admit, I fear mutation testing because I can't, in my mind, I can't see how I would do good mutation testing without duplicating a lot of my code in my tests. Is that a legitimate fear, or am I just being spooked by something in my own imagination? No, that's that that sounds legit. Like it, it is a problem because, as I said, it, it kind of related to the tool that you're using uh, for mutation testing. As I mentioned, like running the tests is the problem because it it can be too slow. Uh, that's why it's important to for the tool to define which tests to run, uh, and if you want to have like very isolated tests that would cover everything then you will end up with a lot of duplication in your code, uh, in your in your tests. And I've experienced that myself. But it is possible to cover most of the mutations uh, without the duplication. Uh, it's just that you need to run the, the entire suite, yeah. which can be just too slow. But yeah, it's still something that, that you can do against very specific parts of your code. So yeah. uh, I used it in a couple of, of projects uh, just, for specific parts, and it was extremely helpful there. Yeah, yeah, I, I can definitely see how it would improve the thoroughness of your tests. Oh yeah, definitely. So we're getting close to needing to uh, switch over to picks, but I, I don't want to do that until we talk about this last point in your blog post because I, I really think you saved the best for last, which I love. The, the last point in your blog post is ideas behind ORM are a fallacy. Yeah, and and. I just want to give you the podium. Or Avdi, did you have did you have something to add on the fire? Well, yeah. I, mean, I just want to say I'm absolutely uh, looking forward to this because the last time we talked to you, uh, you were you know you were neck deep in implementing a for real serious object relational mapper for Ruby, uh, but that has that has changed course significantly since the last time we talked. So I'm I'm very curious about your thoughts there. <laughs> yeah, oh, that's true. Um... Yeah, I mean, in, in general, the main idea behind ORM is actually something that we need, especially in Ruby. Like in Ruby, everything is an object, right? So, like, typically we represent data as, as I don't know, hashes or array of hashes, for example. So, we definitely need something that we know how to load the data from a database and just map it to the Ruby object. So, like, that part is obviously something that we need. But like everything else is a horror for me these days. So, like, something that, that made me change my mind was that I spent a lot of time working on two ORMs, basically. The first one was Data Mapper, and then, uh, then Ruby Object Mapper. So, initially, the project was supposed to be the actual Data Mapper, right? Uh, the implementation of Data Mapper pattern. And the more I worked on it, the more I realized that it's just so much complexity, and it requires so much logic that it just made me start to question it, like, do I really want to do it? Is it really worth the, the effort? And it's also kind of related to, to the ideas behind immutability. So the typical thing uh, in, in Active Record, for example, is that the objects are mutable. So you basically load a bunch of objects into memory, and then you change them, and then something needs to like synchronize the state of those objects with the data that you have in your database. And that part alone is just extremely complicated. And to make things worse, uh, we have a ton of additional functionality in Active Record and lots of other ORMs in Ruby. So 
the way we do it is that we add even more complexity to something that is already extremely complicated. And once, once I learned about all the, you know, teeny, you know, all those tiny little problems that, that must be solved, uh, I just realized that it's just too much and I don't want to build software based on something that's so complicated. So I just decided to do something that, that's way simpler than that. And I realized that the most important thing for me is, is the actual data. Uh, and I want to really focus on that part. I just want something that makes it easy and, and efficient to get the data from the database and just load it into memory. Uh, and then when I want to change something, I want something that that's separate from from the reading because that's that's just a just just a separate concern. And after time, after two months of thinking about it, uh, I just decided to change from direction and and re- rebuild it from scratch. And uh, I decided to to uh, follow the command query responsibility segregation, uh, which is about separating reading from writing. Uh, and so far, so good. I'm I'm extremely happy with with how it evolves. So, yeah, that's like in a nutshell, I guess. I'm trying to get my head around this, and and I know we don't have a lot of time, and it's it's going to be difficult to talk about just hand waving anyway. But I really want to understand this better. Like, I know with traditional ORMs, in order to read something from the database and then update it and then write it back, we usually have things like dirty tracking to know you know which. Uh, fields in which objects were changed. How do you manage that kind of thing? Are you just explicitly writing back the new copies of the records that you know you've changed, or what? Uh, I mean, the way it works in ROM right now is that you have a command interface, and commands work with uh, some input. So essentially, you have like three steps. Uh, you receive you receive some input. You need to like perform some coercions, sanitize it, validate it. And then you just persist it. And if you're updating an existing record, you can provide the original um, data to pull uh, so that you can compare um, the input with the original one and decide whether or not some database operation needs to be executed. Uh, but in ROM, you don't you don't load an object to like change it somehow in memory and then get its state and then send it back to to, to the database. Uh, it's just very very uh, simplified. So it's, it's, it's mostly focusing on, on dealing with the data itself. Very interesting. And how far along would you say you are with this? Do you feel like you've, you've realized most of your vision so far, or are you still getting started on it? Uh, I built a couple of projects already with ROM, so I feel like it's, it's a good direction, but there are some things that should be improved in terms of uh, building queries and, and mapping more complex structures, especially when it comes to associations. Uh, but in general, I'm, I'm loving it, to be honest. I'm obviously biased, but so far so good, as I said. it's It feels really good, and I like the separation. I can clearly see that it simplifies a lot. It makes things more explicit. And also, in ROM itself, it's just easier to work on it and evolve it when things are separated. Uh, I like the, the data-centric approach. Uh, I like that it's, it's focused so much on the data. Um, the way I'm using it these days is that I... I just load data into memory and represent them as simple structs. And then I have some other objects that depend on the data structures and they do some work. Uh, so it feels really good. Uh, I don't have, there are like no callbacks, no, no life cycle kind of stuff as we have in active record. Uh, validation is separated. Uh, data correction is separated. Mapping is separated. Those are just like small little pieces that work together. 
and like the, the core concept in Rome is that you have a, a pipeline of data uh, and you like, change things. I mean, change things and map things uh, in individual steps, and it's just easy to uh, to do it in Rome. So when you have some relation, it can send data through multiple uh, multiple mappers uh, and decorate the data the way you want. I think that it's it's also easier to do uh, DCI with with ROM because it's just so easy to decorate data with objects that are uh, supposed to be used in, speci- in, in in individual contexts. So, for example, if you're rendering something, you can get the the data from a relation and decorate it with uh, with some behavior that is needed for uh, for the rendering part. Uh, you can easily create presenters. Uh, you can easily create some objects that know what templates to render. Like one thing that I tried recently in a Rails app was that I completely stopped using helpers to render views, uh, to render like HTML pieces. And I, I started using uh, templates for everything. Uh, so I basically load data uh, and I decorate it with objects that know how to render individual elements of the user interface. Uh, and I absolutely loved it. Like I, I removed entire layer from, from my app, which is helpers, and I hate helpers. So that felt really great. Uh, I think like there, there are lots of things that you can do uh, just differently uh, once you focus on, on, on like fetching data efficiently uh, and depending on very specific data structures as opposed to like trying to design some some abstract objects that would, I don't know, uh, be similar to the real world because it, it just doesn't work like that. Uh, so I'm, I'm trying to focus much more on, on data and data processing uh, and, and like simple decoration that, that is used uh, in individual contexts. So, for example, in ROM, you, you wouldn't have a single user object. Uh, you would have, I don't know, a user renderer for the user interface or some JSON serializer. So, yeah, that's the, it's just a different approach. Uh, I love it, seriously. I think it's, it's, it's really refreshing and it opens, opens up possibilities. Like, lots of things can be done differently and more efficiently. Are there any projects, uh, open source projects, where people can see examples of this in action? Um, I'm not sure, to be honest. I have a simple ROM demo in my account. <laughs> to be honest, I don't know. <laughs> I would have to ask people. Uh, but the community is growing. More and more people are using it. So I guess if we ask around, we would probably find something. Uh, but I know that people are started using ROM um, in their projects at work. Um, so I think it works for more than just me. <laughs> Obviously, we'll include a link to the ROM homepage in the show notes. Are there any other resources that people should know about if they want to get started with this? Uh, I think the website, the main ROM website, is a good place to start. We have a couple of short articles like as an introduction to, to the project, uh, just because it's just, just so different from anything else that we have. Um, so we put together some uh, articles explaining like philosophy behind the project. And yeah, like the most difficult part is to explain that Ruby Object Mapper is not an ORM, <laughs> which I'm still trying to explain clearly, but it's it's just difficult. That's awesome. Okay, well, I guess this is the point where we seg into picks. I I don't have anything else. Opti or Piosh, do you have anything cool you're working on that you want to pitch? I think I already mentioned that we should mention also uh, Transproc, which is like the data mapping backend for ROM. Yeah. Um, right, Avdi? Yeah, yeah, let's... Um... We didn't really have time to talk about it, but let's definitely include that in the show notes at least. Oh, okay. Can you give like a quick 30-second summary of Transproc? Uh, yeah, it's 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 a library that is the actual data mapping backend for for ROM, which is written in a like less standard way, I should say. 
it's like more functional. Uh, so we basically compose a transformation function like outside of the, the actual data context. So it's like separated from the actual data that will be used. Uh, and you can like compose a pretty complicated data transformation and then call it with some input and it will, it will just do its job. Uh, and it, it's used in Rome as uh, one of the backends. Uh, I mean, right now it's the only one, but you could implement your own if you want. Right on. Very cool. Well, Piotr, thank you very much for, for being here. This was a lot of fun. Let's jump into picks. Avdi, do you want to do picks? Sure. Uh, well, so uh, I have completed my move a month or so ago to the beautiful state of Tennessee, and I am beginning to dig into, into the local brewing scene and uh, local, semi-local, generally checking out the sort of southern, southeastern beers. Uh, one of them that particularly stuck out to me recently is the uh, Road Trip beer from Sweetwater Brewing Company. It is, uh, they think they call it a India Pale Pilsner, which is one of those weird combos, but it actually really, really works. Great summer beer if you like hoppier beers. Um, I've been enjoying it a lot. What else? Uh, oh, here's a silly little one. For years and years, I think along with everyone else, I used the standard little Jaws staple remover whenever I wanted to remove staples from papers. I mean, you know, everybody's got one of those little jaws that you grab the staple yeah. with and you yank it out and uh, occasionally terrorize young children with. But uh, as I've been getting more serious about having a, a paperless or at least limited paper office, I realized it was time to to see if uh, staple remover technology had progressed at, at all in the last 20 years. And it turns out it has. You can get these little uh, push-style staple removers, uh, I've got a Bostitch push-style staple remover, and it works way better than the little grabbers. Hard to describe over the air, but basically you sort of slot it under the uh, under the staple and you push forward and it just com comes right out. And this one is magnetized as well, so the staple usually sticks to it instead of going flying off into the wilderness. And uh, uh, it works really well, very efficient, um, also doesn't seem to tear up the paper as much. So um, uh, I don't know about you, office supplies really excite me. They make me happy. Uh, and this one... <laughs> This one, along with my stapler collection, is uh, making my my office life a little easier. So I think that about covers it for me. I'm going to invent a service that lets you submit a PDF or an ebook, and it will remove the staples from it and send it back to you. <laughs> it's like electronic staple removal. I think that would be, be pretty good. I guess it's just the two of us today, and uh, so I'll, I'll do some picks real quick. And I've had a chance to practice these picks because last week we kind of messed up the recording about the time we got to picks and we lost all of the picks. And so if you listen to last week's show, you'll notice that we did actually get picks from Dave, but that's because he graciously agreed to jump back on a new call and re-record his picks and the rest of the rogues didn't re-record theirs. So just real quick, my picks from, from last week, these are stale reused picks, but you didn't get them. So they're new to you. So why not? Actually, I'll just do the two most important ones that I, I think are in here. The, the first one is that uh, Avdi picked the Evoluant Ergonomic Mouse a couple of weeks ago, or a couple months ago, rather. And I like that mouse. In fact, I have two of them. I have a right-handed one and a left-handed one so that I can switch off when my elbow starts to hurt. And I found that I had some problems with it. Notably, I kept clicking on the back and forward buttons, so I literally dismantled the mouse and removed those buttons from the mouse so that I would stop doing that. But the other 
problem that I had with it is that it's a three-button mouse, and the third button goes all the way to the bottom. These are, By the way, if, if you're not familiar with these and you're listening along, these are vertical mice. You hold your hand out like you're shaking hands with somebody, and that's the position because the mouse is like turned up on its side, and so you just move your hand around vertically the whole time that you're using it. And for me, holding on to the evoluant mouse is a problem because when I go to squeeze it, I end up right-clicking. I end up clicking the third button on the mouse. And that was kind of a problem for me. And so I went looking for a mouse that had like dead space down on the bottom edge so that I could actually hang on to it. And Avdi and I had a great kind of comedic uh, back and forth because I mentioned that I had the evoluant that he had picked. And I picked this this mouse, which is the anchor ergonomic mouse. And Avdi then pointed out that he has the anchor mouse as well, and he favors the evoluant over the the anchor. They're they're both good mice. Mouse fight. Yeah, mouse fight. Mouse fight. So, David, didn't you learn anything about squeezing mice from the book of Mice and Men? I I love them and I pet them and I call them George. <laughs> and yeah, it's you know you can be taught. I cannot. I need a mouse that does, you know can be squoezed. So this is why all of my toys are you know big and brightly colored. You know. So anyway. <laughs> The anchor mouse is, it's just a two button mouse. Uh, it does actually have, like, for third button, you have to click the mouse wheel. It's like that old style. But the place where the third button would be is just dead mouse area. So I can actually hang on to the anchor mouse. It's a lot more lightweight. It's cheaper than the Evoluant. And by cheaper, I mean less expensive. It does feel like a really good, solid, high quality mouse. And I really like it. Uh, it comes in a Bluetooth and a wired form. And my wired mouse showed up the day after we recorded last week, and so I've had you know six days to play with it, and I love it uh, way better than the Bluetooth. The Bluetooth mouse sometimes skips; the transponder doesn't quite keep up all the time, and the wired mouse just is just rock solid. So, the Anchor ergonomic mouse from we'll put a link to Amazon in the show notes, and I absolutely love it. I think it's I think it's fantastic. The other pick that I have is the Kickstarter page, which uh, will be going on for about another week and a half to two weeks at the time this show goes to air for the Schlock Mercenary Planet Mercenary role-playing game. So years ago, I picked, I think on the very first show that I was on, uh, which actually was episode one, I picked schlockmercenary.com, which is a webcomic space opera, sci-fi, uh, pseudo-military, just space romp. If you like spaceships and running gun battles and a punchline every single day, Howard Taylor's been drawing this comic since 2000, and the art back then was awful, and now it's absolutely gorgeous because he learned to draw in the past decade and a half. And uh, his writing has just gotten was amazing to begin with, and now it's even better. And people have begged him for years to do a role-playing game, and he finally got with a group of people that do role-playing games professionally, and they said, well, it'll take this much money to really do a proper role-playing game. And he said, fine, let's do a Kickstarter. And they did a Kickstarter. And the good news is uh, it funded in less than 24 hours, and they are now setting stretch goals that are like 5 and 10 times the um, amount of funding level that they originally needed. And it looks like they're going to hit all of these goals but if you want to get in on the goodies, you need to go to the page and, and sign up. So if you're not reading Schlock Mercenary, you need to be reading Schlock Mercenary. If you do read Schlock Mercenary, you'll be happy to know that there is a role-playing game coming out for it. And I'm really excited for it. And it's coming from a third-party company called Planet Mercenary. And uh, you can get to that at 
at bit.ly slash pm dash rpg in all caps so capital p capital m etc dash rpg and we'll put a link to that in the show notes there's going to be a kickstarter going on for another like month and a half or so and the the goodies that uh, are being included as the stretch goals and at the higher level stuff are the kind of stuff that you would really expect from like creators who who really like their fans like you know getting to hang out and talk with the creators and you know Howard is basically offered to write an entire book if it reaches, you know, he's, he's going to write the actual uh, Maxims uh, book that people quote in the comic strip all the time. So this is all inside noise uh, if if you're not a follower of the comic, so I apologize. But uh, if you do follow the comic, you know what I'm talking about, and it's very, very exciting. So the Planet Mercenary RPG Kickstarter, that's uh, my other pick. So... I was going to do four picks, but we don't have another 45 minutes, so I will just cut myself off here, uh, which I should have done five minutes ago. So, Piotr, you said uh, at the top of the show that you didn't have any picks. Have you changed your mind? Do you have any picks for us? Uh, yeah, actually, I do have one thing that I really want to mention. It's it's a service that you can use to record your terminal sessions. It's called, I think you pronounce it as... ASCII Cinema, ASCII Cinema, I don't really know, to be honest, which is funny, uh, but you can maybe help me with pronunciation. Anyway, um, it's a really nice service. I use it a couple of times to record my, my, my uh, sorry, sessions when I was programming. I think RSpec is using it uh, on their, their website. Uh, it's really nice, really easy to use. Um, I'm definitely recommending it, so that's, that's my pick for today. Awesome. Very cool. Well, thank you, guys. This was a kind of a fun show. It was kind of nice and intimate, just the three of us, just hanging out and shooting the breeze. But <laughs> that blog post you wrote gave us a lot of meat to talk about, and I really appreciate you coming yeah, on the show. Yeah, thanks a lot. This episode is sponsored by Mad Glory. You've been building software for a long time, and sometimes it gets a little overwhelming. Work piles up, hiring sucks, and it's hard to get projects out the door. Check out Mad Glory. They're a small shop with experience shipping big products. They're smart, dedicated, will augment your team, and work as hard as you do. Find them online at madglory.com or on Twitter at madglory. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Would you like to join a conversation with the rogues and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a forum that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. You can sign up at rubyrogues.com slash parlor.